Heavenly Father, God, it is such a privilege to be here with you. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you condescend to be here with us, that you love us so much that you're just excited to be here with us. Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit is working powerfully right now on each one of our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, please teach us. Please teach us. We cannot learn on our own. Please, Father, teach our minds and teach our hearts so that we can delight in you and so that we can share this message to the world around us. We pray for these things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 14, 1989, Dick Hoyt ran 26.2 miles, and he swam 2.4 miles, and he bicycled for 112 miles to complete the Ironman competition in Hawaii. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that would be pretty impressive. But what really made this amazing was that Dick Hoyt did it with his 125-pound quadriplegic son in tow. His son Rick was born with spastic quadriplegia and cerebral palsy. For the first 11 years of his life, he could not communicate with his parents. And then at the age of 11, they went to Boston University and they invented a computer program for him that would show letters on the screen and whenever the next letter of the sentence that he was building came up, he would bang his head against the censor and it would add that letter to his sentence and he would construct sentences that way and he began for the first time in his life at the age of 11 to communicate with his parents. His first sentence was, Go Bruins. <laughs> Turns out he was a sports fan. Who knew? At the age of 15, 1977, Rick asked his dad if they could run in a charity event together, a five-mile run for an injured lacrosse player. And his dad said, you know, I don't know. I'm in terrible shape. I've never run five miles before in one shot. Uh, I'd love to do this for you, son, but I'm not sure if I can. Well, they tried, and he succeeded. And after the run was over, Rick said to his dad, he said, Dad, when we're running... I don't feel handicapped anymore. Can you imagine the impact that that statement had on his father's life? For the rest of his life, his dad began to look for opportunities to give his son that same feeling of freedom. And they have run in over a thousand races together since that time, including the Ironman competition that we just saw pictures of. Why does Dick do that? Why does he put himself through all of this pain, all of this training, all of this challenge and suffering? Why does he do this for all these sore feet? Why does he do it? He does it because he loves to see the smile on his son's face. My friends, that is love. Love like that is one of the most powerful forces in all the world. In fact, in all the universe. It was love like that that allowed Jacob to, to work seven long, hard years for Rachel and then to be able to say they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. My friends, love is the great motivator. It transforms the Christian life from a life of must-do, should-do obedience into a life of get-to service. You get to do it because you love to please God. Love transforms the Christian life. And that is why God wants us to love him so much. 
No wonder then that the great and first commandment, according to Jesus himself, is what? Thou shalt love the who? Lord your God with what? All your heart and mind and soul and strength. My friends, what's left over? <laughs> right? God wants us to love him with all of what we are and who we are. No wonder then that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love. No wonder then that this might be one of the most important questions that you and I can ask as Christians. How can I enjoy God? How can I relish God? How can I love to be with Him and to love to work with Him and for Him? How can I delight in the Almighty God? If Christ be in us, the hope of glory, we shall discover such matchless charms in him that the soul will be enamored. But a profession of this love without this deep love is what? Mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. How can we enjoy God? How can we love him to the fullest and obey that commandment? You know, the devil would have you and I believe that the life of the Christian is a life of self-denying, self-sacrificing drudgery. But is that what it is? No, it is a life of self-denying, self-sacrificing joy. Right? Yes, the self-denial is there. Yes, the self-sacrifice is there. But it is a life of joy. That's the life that God has for each one of us. If we love Jesus, we shall love to live for him, to present our thank offerings to him, to labor for him. The very labor will be light. For his sake, we shall covet pain and toil and sacrifice. We shall sympathize with his longing for the salvation of men. We shall feel the same tender craving for souls that he has felt. This is the religion of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the religion of Christ? No wonder then that self-surrender is the substance of the teachings of Christ. My friends, this love that God is commanding is not a common love. This is not one love among many. This is a soul-pervading, self-sacrificing, all-or-nothing love in which Jesus is the center around which our whole life revolves. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about a constant life of ecstasy of feeling. In fact, my favorite definition for joy is a calm delight. Wouldn't you like to go through life with God, no matter what the circumstances, and have a calm delight in the Almighty God? You know what's really interesting about this great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? You know what's really interesting about that commandment? We can't obey it. We have no way to obey that command. There's no knob in our life that we can turn up and say, okay, starting right now, I'm going to love God with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. It doesn't work that way. We can't do it. So where does this love for God come from? It comes from God, right? The Bible says, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay, so now we have a real problem. God commands us to love him with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. He's the one that can only give us that kind of love. He longs to give us that kind of love. Why could we ever be lukewarm? 
How is it possible then that our love for God could be lukewarm? If God is the one who demands it, and He's the one that supplies it, and He's the one that longs for it more than we ever do, then why would our love for God ever be lukewarm? Is it because God is holding back in any way? And yet, for most of my Christian life, my sincere Christian life, my love for God was tepid at best. Even though I grew up in a wonderful Seventh-day Adventist home, I'm a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, I went to good Seventh-day Adventist schools all my life, I went to good Seventh-day Adventist church families all my life, and yet I never learned to love Jesus with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. My love for God was tepid at best. Even after all those 40 years, four decades, sincerely following the Almighty God and not loving Him, not enjoying Him. I knew, for example, that prayer was important. And I prayed. I tried to pray. But I had a hard time. I found it difficult to pray for any length of time. You know, Jesus could pray overnight and enjoy it and look forward to it, and want to do it again. I found it difficult to pray for five minutes at a time. And I, you know, would look for excuses sometimes to shorten my devotional experience, or even skip it completely sometimes. My friends, if we say that we love somebody, but we find ourselves looking for excuses to avoid them, we probably need to reevaluate our love relationship, don't we? And that was certainly what happened in my experience. I needed to reevaluate my love relationship. So what happened? Why did the plant of love fail to grow in my life all those many years? What was the problem? What was I missing? You know, if you ask most people, how can we love God more? They will tell you you need three things, right? They will tell you you need the Bible. You need to study the Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to witness. Those three things are the three love-enhancing tools that we hear a lot about. And it's true. These are Critically important love-enhancing tools. We cannot have a love relationship with Jesus without these three important ingredients. They are often compared to the sunshine and the soil and the, re the rain that makes a plant grow. But will these three things by themselves enhance our love for Jesus? If I have find it hard to pray, will forcing myself to pray enhance my love for Jesus by itself? You know, if it did, then the Pharisees would love God, right? Because they're the ones that were, pre that were praying on the street corners. They're the ones that were spending hours each day in God's Word. They're the ones that were going around the world looking for proselytes, for con converts to Judaism. And yet Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They had the praying down. They had the Bible study down. They had the witnessing down and didn't help them. Besides the ideal growing environment, what else do you need for a plant to grow? A seed. Right? The plant's not going to grow no matter how much water you have, no matter how nutritious the soil. The plant's not going to grow without the seed, is it? And that's what I was missing. I was missing the seed of love in my heart. And where does that seed come from? We saw that verse. Love is where? From who? God. God is the only one that can plant that seed in our life. 
It comes from God. It only can come from God. So why did I fail all those four decades of my sincere Christian life? Why did I fail to let that seed grow? I believe the key to my problem is found in the story of the rich young ruler. Here was a guy who sincerely wanted one of God's greatest blessings. He longed to be saved. And yet he realized that there was something missing in his Christian experience. And so he took a day off work. He went and he found Jesus and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, what am I missing? How can I inherit eternal life? And the Bible records that Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, Ten things you lack. Is that what it says? One thing. One thing you lack. I wish God Jesus would say that to me. One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure where? In heaven and come follow me. My friends, do you believe that God loved this young man? Do you believe that Jesus and God did, and the Holy Spirit did everything in their power to save this young man? Everything in their wisdom and energy and power of the Almighty, do you think that they did everything they could for this young man? Yes, they did. And what was that one thing that he was missing? Christ read the ruler's heart. Only one thing he lacked, but that was a vital principle. He needed what? The love of God in his soul. This lack, unless supplied, would prove fatal to him. His whole nature would become corrupted by indulgence. Selfishness would strengthen. And here's the key right here. That he might receive the love of God, his supreme love of self must be surrendered. My friends, the key to receiving the love of God implanted deeply into our hearts is to open our hearts to Jesus unreservedly, unresistingly and unrelentingly to let God plant that seed deep in our hearts. Only he can do that, but only you and I can let him. And that's why surrender is so important. Surrender is the key to letting God be almighty God in us so that he can implant in us a delight for him. Yes. surrender ourselves to God? Can we surrender ourselves to God? We cannot. Right? That's right. Exactly. Thank you. Only God can help us to surrender to Him. Only He can give us the love that helps us to surrender. Only He can give us the faith. Surrender is a leap of faith. Only God can do it. But my friends, there is something we can do. What can we do? I'm going a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to do this right here. What can you and I do if we are not yet surrendered and we are fighting God? What can we do? Can we say, okay, Lord, I surrender? Can we say that? No, because by nature we don't have that power. We're just not strong enough to defeat self. But there is something we can say. There is something you and I can always say to Jesus. We can say, Lord, I don't want to surrender. I don't want to give up all my bad choices. I like my selfishness, but I'm willing to be made willing. Right? 
We can say, Lord, I'm willing for you to make me willing. And if you're not willing for God to make you willing, step back and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing for you to make me willing to be made willing to be made willing. Whatever it takes, you know, step back and say, God, I am willing to let you. And that is a prayer he will always answer. No matter how bad you're off, if you say to him, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing, he will get you to the place. And I, I'd like to share with you my testimony sometime. It's actually don't have time uh, today. But, you know, all these presentations, all 16 of them are on my website, delighting.org. And number six is my story, my testimony. And so I encourage you, after we do this presentation today, we're, we're going to do number one and two today. I encourage you to go to delighting.org. It's on that, um, that uh, workbook you have. And um, do number three right? Number three is about the problem of self. And then number four and number five and then number six is the testimony. And seven and eight will round out the basic series. And then if you really like what you hear and you want to learn more about the the practical how-to of surrender, move on to the the advanced series, the eight uh, advanced presentations. I really encourage you to do that. So supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another. This is what? What is this? According to Ellen White. This is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. This love is not an impulse, but a divine principle, a permanent power. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate or produce it. Only in the heart where Jesus what? Reigns is it found. Love for God is only found in the heart where Jesus reigns. And that means that self has to be removed from the throne. My friends, the only way that we can receive that seed of love from God is if we open ourselves to Him unreservedly, unresistingly, and unrelentingly, and let Him plant that seed deep within our hearts. Christ read the ruler's heart. Only one thing He lacked, but that was a vital principle. He needed the love of God in the soul. That He might receive the love of God, His supreme love of self must be surrendered. You know something very interesting about the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus did not say to him, Hey, rich young ruler, you have a problem. Follow me, we'll work on this together. No, Jesus said, go away, do this seemingly impossible thing, and when you're done, come back and we'll talk. What's that about? I thought Jesus accepts us just as we are. Doesn't Jesus accept us just as we are? Does he make us go away and clean up our act before we come back? Doesn't Jesus just accept us just as we are? Yes, he does, my friends. But Jesus cannot accept us just as we are unless we're willing to be changed into something different. We have to give ourselves to him to let him mold us and shape us and rebuild us. And rich young ruler was not willing to do that. The rich young ruler went away sad. Jesus did not say to the rich young ruler, go away and love me more, and when you do, come back and we'll talk. It's not what Jesus said. In essence, he said, go away and get rid of the things, and I'll help you do this, get rid of the things that are keeping you from loving me only. Right? Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler, hey, I'll help you, but you need to get rid of those things that are keeping you from loving me. Now, this is Jesus being very practical. You know, Jesus could have said, hey, you've got a love problem, you know, let's just talk about it, and let's just pray about it. He said, yes, but let's also do something about it. Go away and get rid of the things, and my, by my power and my wisdom and by my motivation, you know, God will do it for us, but we have to let him get rid of those things that are keeping him, keeping us from loving him always. What Jesus was talking about was the ultimate bank transfer. A bank transfer, by, by the way, that just isn't for the rich young ruler alone, it's for all of us, right? This transfer of our treasure, 
When Jesus said to the rich and ruler, sell your possessions and give to the poor, he said, you will have treasure where again? In heaven. What Jesus was talking about was the ultimate bank transfer of treasure from earth to heaven. And there is a fantastic passage of scripture that I'd like to share with you right now that talks about this wonderful bank transfer. Here it is in the book of Job. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and your gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then what? What? Let's all read this next sentence together. Then the Almighty will be your gold. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will what? Delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. This is our key phrase this afternoon. Let's read it all together out loud. The key to love is the surrender of self. If I wish to love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and with all my strength, I must give God all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength. My friends, what do you think would have happened if Jesus had said to the rich young ruler, okay, you've got a love problem, follow me, and you can spend time... Um, you know, talking to me, and you can hear my sermons, and you can watch me, and you can focus on Jesus, right? What do you think would have happened if Jesus had said to the rich young ruler, hey, come and follow me right away? Well, we probably don't have to doubt, we would have had another Judas on his hands, right? Jesus would have had another Judas on his hands, because that's exactly what Judas was doing. We are told that Judas loved the great teacher and desired to be with him. He felt the desire to be changed in character and life. And he hoped to experience this through connecting himself with Jesus. And the Savior did not repulse Judas. He gave him a place among the twelve. He trusted him to do the work of an evangelist. He endowed him with power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. But Judas did not what? He did not come to the point of surrendering himself fully, fully, to Christ. If the rich young ruler had been allowed to follow Jesus right then, like he wanted to, he would have had another Judas on his hands. And Jesus wanted to prevent that. Jesus wanted that ultimate bank transfer to happen. The rich young ruler wanted the heavenly treasure, but he wanted also the temporal advantages his riches would bring him. He was sorry that such conditions existed. He desired eternal life, but he was not willing to make the sacrifice. The cost of eternal life seemed too great, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. My friends, for most of my life, I was the rich young ruler. I wanted eternal life. I wanted God's blessings. But I also had these temporal advantages that I wanted to keep. Right? I had these temporal riches. It wasn't money. I was never cursed with money. Thank goodness for that. But I had these things that were precious to me, that I knew were not God's will. I had these choices in my life. And in my testimony, I share more about what those choices were and how God gave me victory over them. But I had these choices that I knew were not God's choices for me. But I said, oh, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever said it yourself? My friends, those are the most insidious words in all of Christendom. 
That's exactly what the devil would have you believe. Oh, it's not that big a deal. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. My friends, anything that separates us from God is a big deal. Anything that keeps us from loving him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength is a big deal. And it was these little things that kept me enslaved to the devil for 40 years after, uh, 30 years after my baptism. It was the little things. It wasn't big things. It was the little things that kept me from delighting in the Almighty God. I was not willing to throw my gold in the dust so that God could be my gold and precious silver to me. The good news is that unlike the rich young ruler, God did get through to me eventually. Praise the Lord. He kept on working at me. He kept on uh, trying to teach me how surrender worked and what it was all about and what my, what I, my needs were. And uh, he finally got through to me. And like I said, this is in my uh, presentation number six, but I woke up one morning and God had, through the weeks and months of this process, he had somehow supernaturally gotten me to the point where I was ready and willing to say, okay, Lord, all my choices and everything all the time. I'm just giving to you. I just don't want to make any choices. I want you to have everything. Even those things that are so precious to me that I can't imagine letting go, I'm letting them go. It's a leap of faith, and Lord, they're yours. God eventually got me to that place, and it was the most blessed experience in my life. But um, guess what happened immediately upon that surrender experience? Remember, this happened 30 years after my baptism, at the age of 44. Guess what happened immediately after I surrendered my life to Jesus? I began to delight in prayer. I began to love it, to really, truly enjoy it. For the first time in my life, I looked forward to it. I could spend an hour in prayer and look forward to it every morning. It became a priority. It truly became the most precious time of my day. And this was not a result of a prayer seminar or a new prayer technique, although those have their place. My friends, this was the result of conversion. <laughs> this was the Holy Spirit, probably, maybe, for the first time in my life, being allowed to be Almighty God in my life. And I believe that God wants us to have that enjoyment of prayer. I think first and foremost, He wants us to, to have that love of spending time with Him, talking and sharing and communing with Him. That's the breath of the soul. And so He gave me that, that enjoyment Overnight, it was such a, it was, it, to me, it's one of the greatest miracles I've ever experienced. That total transformation of my prayer life. You know, there's another aspect of this, this story, the rich young ruler, that's very important, and that is the cost of eternal life. How many of you thought eternal life was a free gift? You should be raising your hands right now, right? Because the Bible's on your side, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's this about the cost of eternal life? Why didn't Jesus just say to the rich young ruler, hey, it's, it's, it's free. Here it is. Go and enjoy and sin no more. I mean, why didn't God just say that? Why didn't Jesus say that? Why did he set the bar so high that the rich young ruler was unwilling to pay the cost? Do you remember the pearl, the parable of the pearl of great price? Remember that parable? When the merchant found the pearl, which represents Jesus and his blessings, when the merchant found the pearl, what did he do? The Bible says, when he found one pearl of great price, he went and he did what? Sold all that he had and bought it. My friends, what Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to do is no different than what he's asking for every one of us to do. If we want the pearl of great price, we're going to have to give ourselves lock, stock, and barrel to God. 
unreservedly, unresistingly, and unrelentingly to Jesus. In the parable, the pearl is not represented as a gift. The merchantman bought it at the price of all that he had. Many question the meaning of this, Ellen White says. Since Christ is represented in the scriptures as a gift, he is a gift, but only to those who give themselves, soul, body, and spirit to him without what? My friends, Jesus is a free gift, but only to those who give themselves, soul, body, and spirit to him without reserve. We are to give ourselves to Christ, to live a life of willing obedience to all his requirements. All that we are, all the talents and capabilities we possess are the Lord's, to be consecrated to his service. When we thus give ourselves wholly to him, listen to this, folks, this is incredible. When we thus give ourselves wholly to him, Christ, with all the treasures of heaven, gives himself to us, we receive the pearl of great price. Isn't that incredible? My friends, if self-surrender is the substance of the teachings of Christ, which Ellen White tells us in Desire of Ages, how is it possible that we're not understanding this fundamental principle of the cost of eternal life? That we, in order to receive eternal life, must throw our gold in the dust so that God becomes our gold. That when we thus give ourselves wholly to him, Christ, with all the treasures of heaven, gives himself to us. My friends, that is why... We are in desperately need of revival and reformations because we haven't done that. God is longing to pour out himself and all the treasures of heaven on each one of us. But we are a church in desperate need of revival and reformation because we have not opened ourselves wholly to him. We have not given ourselves to him without reserve so that he can give us the treasures of heaven and Christ. But isn't it just a little bit deceptive to say that it's a free gift and yet cost you everything? Doesn't that bother you just a little bit? It's a free gift, but it'll cost you everything. I mean, it seems like, you know, there's something not quite right about that. Well, maybe a modern illustration can help us out. When NASA gave away their space shuttles, when NASA shut down their space program, they gave away the space shuttles. Free of charge. Billion-dollar spaceships. The pride of the American space program given away free of charge. So why don't I have one in my backyard? Well, there's several reasons. 42 million of them, as a matter of fact. Because it turns out that to take this free shuttle and to make it safe for people to be around, you have to decommission it, which means it takes away all the noxious, uh, poisonous substances and chemicals of which a spaceship has a lot of. And that, that will cost you about $23 million, which is 23 million good reasons why I don't have one. And then, in order to get this space shuttle to your backyard, you're going to have to have a 10,000-foot runway. You know, they put it on the big airplane, the 747, and they fly it into your backyard. You know, 10,000-foot runway. If you don't already have one of those, that will cost you another $5.6 million. And then, in order to store this national treasure, you need a temperature and humidity-controlled environment, and that will cost you another $8 million. So this free gift... In order to receive it, costs $42 million. The gift is free, priceless, cannot be bought. But in order to receive the gift, it will cost $42 million. It'll cost a fortune. My friends, it's the same way with Jesus. Jesus is a priceless gift. But in order to receive that priceless gift, it will cost us everything. 
In order to make room for that priceless gift in our hearts, the heart has to be empty. God is too big to fit in the life that is full of self. When God comes in, he doesn't share the throne with self. Self has to be dethroned. Surrender has to be commit, fully committed to. We say, Lord, I want you to be on the throne, and you only. And self gets relegated to the deepest dungeons of our life. It doesn't die. We'll talk about that later. But it doesn't die, but it still gets relegated to the deepest dungeons. My friends, the key to loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength is to give God all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Do we love God? Do we enjoy Him? Do we delight in Him? Do we love to talk about Him and to share Him? Do we love to work for Him and with Him? Do we love to spend time with Him? God wants us to. God longs for us to. God is eager for us to delight in Him. If we want to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, then we have to give God all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Okay, fine. That sounds good. But how does that work in real practical terms? I teach computer science, so if you'll forgive me if I get really practical. How does this work? How does this loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength work in practical terms? In order to answer that question, I would like to look at a different question that seems a little bit off topic, but don't worry, it's coming back. I once heard this question posed by a pastor of an Adventist church, and when I heard the question, I said, oh, that's easy. I thought I had an answer for it. But you know, the more I thought of this question, the more I realized that not only was it not an easy question, but I had no answer for it. Do you want to see the question? Do you? Are you sure? (laughs) Okay, here it is. If salvation is a free gift of God and does not come by works, then why does God require obedience? Seems like a simple question. You know, and the common answer to this question is, oh, that's easy. You know, we don't obey God in order to deserve merit, you know, salvation. That's not what it's about. We obey God because we, out of a love for what he's already done for us, out of appreciation for what he's done for us, right? That's the answer you hear. We obey God because of what he's done for us. We don't obey God in order to earn salvation. We obey God because of salvation, right? That's a great question. That's a great answer. It just doesn't answer this question. That answers the question, where does our motivation come from? That answers the question, where does motivation for obedience come from? Yes, it comes from love. Love is the only true motivation for obedience. We love God because of what he's done for us, and that love makes us want to obey him. That's true. But that's not what this question is asking. This question is asking something different. It's asking, if it's not about salvation, then what is it about? In other words, what is the purpose of obedience? Have you ever thought about that? The Bible clearly tells us that obedience plays no role in earning or deserving or meriting salvation. We're all clear with that, right? No problem. So if that's true... If obedience is not about earning, deserving, or meriting salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, then what is it about? What's its purpose? Why does God want us to obey him? Why can't we just say, okay, you know, no problem. We don't have to obey God. You know, we as uh, Seventh-day Adventists have a love-hate relationship with with obedience, don't we? On the one hand, you know, we, we fight legalism. 
And well, we should. Legalism is an insidious evil. It is trying to earn something that has already been freely given, and in the process of earning it, we lose out on it entirely. So we hate the legalism, but as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we also realize that obedience is important, don't we? In fact, we, we still keep all ten of the Ten Commandments. Not every Christian can say that. So we understand the importance of obeying God. The problem comes when somebody starts obeying God too carefully. Have you ever noticed that? Ah, oh, wow, that guy's a legalist. He won't even eat, you know, fill in the blank. Ah, that gal's got to get a life. She won't even listen to, watch, fill in the blank. You know, when somebody starts obeying God too carefully, we start getting a little bit uncomfortable. Is this legalism? Is that person a legalist? My friends, is it legalism to obey God as carefully as we possibly can? It can be. It absolutely can be. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. In fact, in God's pure way, it's not. If we go God's way, according to God's will, then obeying Him as carefully as He empowers us to obey Him is the most wonderful thing in the world. You know, it doesn't take a theologian to realize that God values our obedience, does it? You can hardly read a page of Scripture without being impressed by all the commands that the Bible has in it. Packed full of commands. Here's some examples. Love your enemies. Be content with your wages. Endure hardship. Be patient toward all people. Flee hurtful lusts. Be glad in persecution. Do all to the glory of God. Give cheerfully. Keep yourself pure. Deny yourself. All of these things and more you will find in every page of Scripture. Page after page after page. And you know, we often think of the Old Testament as being the demanding part of Scripture, don't we? But all of these commands, these are all taken from the New Testament. In fact, I can show you a website where it lists 1,050 commands that are found in the New Testament. So back to our question. If, if it's not about salvation, if works and obedience is not about earning, deserving, or meriting salvation, then what is it for? What is its purpose? Perhaps the best place to go to answer that question is to go back to the children of Israel. This is perhaps the most commanded people in all of history. Have you ever noticed that? God just rescued them from Egypt, from slavery to Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Carmel, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Fine, good, okay, no problem. But it doesn't stop there. He lays on the whole sanctuary rituals and services. And then he doesn't stop there. He piles on the Levitical do's and don'ts that fill up the books of Numbers and, Deut and Leviticus today and make it difficult for us to read. Why did God do that to his people? If obedience is not about earning, deserving, or meriting salvation, then what is it for? The answer, of course, is that God did not do it to them. He did it for them, right? The Bible says... All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 2. This is a fascinating chapter. The first half of this chapter, Deuteronomy 28, is about all the blessings that God wanted to lavish on the children of Israel. And the second half of this chapter is about the curses that would come from not obeying God. Let me give you just a quick overview of the first half of this chapter 28. 
You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. I love that. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns, on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath. If what? If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. It goes on. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouses of his bounty to send rain on your land and season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations but borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them. You will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left. My friends, don't you just get the feeling as you read that chapter that God just wants to bless his people? Don't you just get the feeling that God is eagerly looking for any excuse to lavish his goodness upon his people? God just wants to bless his people. Oh, God says, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always because I am the great almighty God and I deserve to be obeyed. Is that what it says? That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God just wants to bless us. God just wants to lavish his goodness upon us. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here because many of God's blessings... They're not easy or comfortable or even pleasant sometimes, right? God's blessings include self-denial, self-sacrifice, suffering, affliction, trials. These are some of God's blessings. God just wants to lavish his goodness upon us. And included in those are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all the fruits of the Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit, so many wonderful things that God wants for us. <clears throat> Jesus says, or God says, Oh, they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them, their sons forever. That's God himself talking, God Almighty. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. He who finds me finds wisdom and life, uh, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. It's talking about wisdom. But he who sins against me injures who? Who? Himself. He who sins against wisdom injures himself. If you know these things, Jesus says, you are blessed if what? If you do them. For some reason, this thing is uh, on its, going on its own. I'm sorry about that. The human family is suffering because of transgression of the laws of God. The Lord desires that men shall be led to understand the cause of their suffering and the only way to find relief. He desires them to see that their well-being, physical, mental, and moral, depends Upon what? Their obedience to his law. Every one of God's commands is a gift, an invitation to be blessed. My friends, if we would just understand this one statement, this one reality about God's kingdom, every one of God's commands is a gift, an invitation to be blessed. Every time that God commands us to do something, he's saying, please accept my blessing. 
Thou shalt not be unhealthy. Thou shalt not fall into that pit. Thou shalt have peace. Thou shalt have joy. These are all of God's commands. Thou shalt be blessed. Thou shalt not be cursed. Every single one of God's commands, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is God inviting you personally to a blessing. And that is why, my friends, that obedience is so important to God, because God just wants to bless us. On Christmas morning, around the country, parents get out of bed extra early, and they go into their kids' bedrooms, and they yank them out of bed, and they say, you go down and open your presents right now or else. Right? That's how it works, right? What? No? Not in your home? In your home, does it work the other way around, where the kids redefine morning? And they come bouncing up in your bed and say, can we have our gifts yet? Can we open our gifts yet? And yet, why do we, as children of the Almighty God, say, oh, Lord, do I really have to accept another one of your gifts? Do I really have to open up another one of your wonderful gifts? Why do we let the devil give obedience a bad name? Obedience is not why God blesses me. It is how he blesses me. I'd like to encourage you to memorize that statement. Obedience is not why God blesses me. That's what a legalist thinks. A legalist thinks that they can get God to bless them by obeying. But that's not true at all. Obedience is not why he blesses us. It's how he does it. That's why it's so important. It's important not because we're trying to earn something. It's important because we're trying to receive something. It's not like we're saying we're holding up a basket full of cash and say, okay, Lord, I've obeyed. Therefore, now fill my basket with blessings. No. Obedience is simply holding up an empty basket and say, Lord, I'd like to receive your blessings. I'd like to receive your goodness. Everything that God wants us to do is good. God knows what's best for us. Right? There's nothing bad about going God's way. Every one of God's commands is a gift, an invitation to be blessed. God does not bless us because of our obedience. He blesses us by our obedience. That's the key thought. If salvation is a free gift of God and does not come by works, then why does God require obedience? Back to our original question. My friends, now we can answer this question, and it's really easy to answer. Why does God require obedience? Because he just wants to bless us, right? God just longs to lavish his goodness upon us. Every one of God's commands is an insight into his perfect will. It's, a, it's an invitation to receive the blessing of that perfect will. And God just wants to bless us. Okay, one question down. We have one more to go. Only two questions for this presentation, then we're done. The second question is this one. Can I say thanks, but no thanks to God? Oh, my goodness. We just got rid of a hard question. Now we're working into a little bit of a harder one. In other words, is it okay as a true follower of Jesus to say, okay, Lord, I appreciate that all of your commands are gifts, and I, I really do appreciate those gifts, by the way, God. Uh, but, you know, I'd rather go my own way on this one. Is that okay as a Christian to do that, as a follower of Christ? Can we say, Lord, I'd rather not receive this blessing? Can we skip a blessing? Is it okay? If all of God's commands are blessings, can we skip one from time to time and say, you know, I know the consequences. I understand, I think, the consequences of not obeying you. I'm willing to accept those consequences. I'll just skip this blessing. Well, Let's get really practical about this right now. <clears throat> Let's say that I am at my favorite ice cream joint, and um, it's a hot day, and I am thirsty, and I am hot, and I'm looking up at that delectable menu, and I see this chocolate, chocolate fudge sundae with extra chocolate. 
And I'm sitting there drooling and say, oh, that would be so good right now. And so I say to God, Lord, I understand that, what are, that you have commanded that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And I recognize, Father, that ice cream sundaes are not known for their God-glorifying qualities. But I am willing to accept the consequences of going my own way on this one. It's not going to kill me, probably. I'm not committing adultery or robbing a bank. Come on, you guys. Let's not make a mountain out of a molehill here. Is this legalism? Is it okay for me to say to God, Lord, I know what you want, but I'm going to go my own way just this once, just on this one thing. I mean, obviously I'll follow you on the 99.9% of the other things, but just this one little thing. Is it okay for us to skip a blessing from time to time? Okay, that's the question we want to answer. My friends, God has given us the power of choice, hasn't he? And it is a wonderful power. It is probably the, it is the only power that God has given us. It's the greatest power. For all of eternity, it will be our power. God has given us the power of choice. And yet, sometimes, as followers of Christ, we have this tendency to take our power of choice for granted. Have you ever noticed that? We take this power of choice, this great power that God has given us, we take it for granted. I once took a group of uh, 12 students to Sierra Leone to do evangelistic series. We did 12 evangelistic series, including myself. There was 12 of us, including myself, and we each one did an evangelistic series. We all preached 19 times in 17 days. We went through the share him thing. We did all those presentations. Here was a dedicated group of young people. They took off their summer vacations, a great group of people. I love them. And as we were preparing one of our presentations, it was on Sunday, about on the Sabbath, we were asked to talk to the congregation a little bit and say, hey, congregation, why do you worship on Sunday? Is it because you have studied the Bible and you know what the Bible says about the Sabbath and Sunday? Or is it because you have always done it that way? Is it because your parents do it that way? Is it because your pastor does it that way? In other words, why do you make this important choice about what day you're going to worship on why do you make that choice? How do you make that choice? Do you take that choice for granted, or do you take it seriously? It's a good question. We were asked to, to ask that to the congregation. And as I was preparing that presentation, I remember thinking, wow, I wonder if I ever do that. Do I ever make choices? I mean, not about the Sabbath, but do I, do I ever make choices just because I've always done it that way? I mean, my parents, everybody's doing it. Or do I, do I take my power of choice for granted? So the next day, for morning worship, I, um, because I'm really mean, I said to the students, I said, do you guys eat cake and candy and cookies and all these things? And they said, yeah, and they laughed, you know, of course. And I said, why do you do that? Is it because you know it's healthy for you? No, we know it's unhealthy for us. Oh, okay, well, then you must need the calories and the fat and things that you get from that, right? No, no, we don't need the calories and the fat that we get from that. It's unhealthy. You don't need anything that comes from it, and so why would you do that? And they laughed and said, because it tastes good, silly right? It tastes good. My friends, why do we make the choices that we make? Do we take the power of choice that God has given us for granted, or do we take it seriously? Do we choose because everybody's doing it that way, our peers, our parents, our pastors, or do we choose because we know what God's will is and we want to please him? 
How do we make our choices? How do we handle that power of choice that God has given us? So this is the question I have. Can we say thanks but no thanks to God? Is it okay to say, Lord, thank you for the power of choice. I'm going to use it to go my own way. I'm going to skip this blessing. Is that okay? As a Christian, I would, I would propose that the answer is no, and you might not be surprised by that, but you might be surprised by why. It's because when we obey God, there are several wonderful things that happen. For one thing, we receive temporal health. We receive the physical, mental, social, and emotional blessings that come from following God. You know, God knows what's best for us. When we go God's way, we are temporally, physically, mentally, socially blessed. God knows that. But that's not the only blessing that comes from obeying God. In fact, did you know that obedience is faith-enhancing? Yeah, the Bible says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the what? Works, the what? Faith was perfected. How many of you want more faith? Yes, we all do, right? We desperately need faith. The Bible says the righteous will live by faith. Jesus says that scary words, it shall be done to you according to your faith, which if you think about it, it's really scary sometimes, right? Do we want more faith? Yes. How is one of the ways that God works in us to increase our faith? As a result of the works, faith was perfected. So that's one of the blessings of obeying God. But besides that, did you know that obeying God is prayer enhancing? That's right. Prayer is the breath of the soul. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. God knows that when we go His way, He knows that our heart will not condemn us and that it will make it easier for us to enjoy Him, to come close to Him because of that. And so that is one of the blessings of obedience. But my friends, that's not all. There is another blessing, an overarching blessing, that comes from obeying God. And this, my friends, by itself would be the answer to why we would never want to skip any one of God's blessings, not one of his commands. Here it is. Obeying God is love-enhancing. Did you know that? Did you know that part of the the purpose of obedience is to grow in our love for Jesus. Every time we open one of his good gifts and we, and we experience the blessing that comes from those gifts, our love for him grows. That's how our love for God flourishes. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Part of what it means to abide in Jesus is to abide with him in the center of his will. The most blessed place that you and I can be as Christians is delighting in the Almighty God in the center of his will with him. And my friends, if, if obeying God is love-enhancing, the opposite side of that coin is also true. Disobeying God is love-inhibiting. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our disobedience separates us from our God. It is love inhibiting. Obeying God, going his way is love enhancing, and disobeying God is love inhibiting. My friends, does this verse tell us that God turns his back on us when we, when we sin? Is that what that says? No. How is God's face hidden from us when we sin? 
It's because we're turning our back on Him. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, who came running and who hid from who? Right? When we say, Lord, I know your will, but I'm turning my back on your will, that turns our back on God, and that's not a good place to be. We are told that to know God is to be one with him in heart and mind. Having an experimental knowledge of him, holding reverential communion with him as the Redeemer, only through sincere obedience can this communion be obtained. Wow. No wonder God just wants us to obey him. No wonder God wants us so badly to go his way. No wonder God has given us all these wonderful commands, all these wonderful invitations to be blessed. God knows that the only way that we can enjoy him, that we have that communion with him, is through sincere obedience. God has given us the power of choice. It is our power. Throughout eternity, it will be our power. Can we use that power of choice and say, Lord, I know your will. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to skip that blessing. The answer, of course, is no. Because when we do that, we turn our back on God. And that's never a good thing. That is not love enhancing. That is not the light enhancing. My friends, I hope that you understand that I'm not talking to you today about ice cream. I hope you got that. I'm not feeling like it's my responsibility to stand up here and tell you what you should eat or what you shouldn't eat or what you should drink or what you shouldn't drink, my friends. What I'm talking about this afternoon is our choices, our power of choice. I'd like to encourage you to think about the power of choice as a great privilege that it is and to take it seriously, to take it prayerfully. The Christian life is like orange juice. How many of you like orange juice? Anybody here like orange juice? Oh, yeah, okay. We love orange juice. It is a delightful nectar. I um, went on a business trip when I was an engineer before I was teaching. I went on a business trip to Singapore, and I came down from the hotel to the breakfast buffet, and there was this big bowl of half-cut oranges. And right beside that bowl, there was this juicer, juicing machine, you know. And uh, I made myself a fresh-squeezed glass of juice, and that was so good. But you know, just a couple tables down from that juice machine was the pastry table. What would have happened, do you think, if I had made myself this delectable glass of juice, and if I had drank a sip, and oh, that's so good, set it down, walked over and eaten a bite, just one bite of a donut, and come back? What do you think would have happened? The juice would have become sour. It would become unpalatable. What happened? Did the juice change? No, our taste buds changed. My friends, by our choices, we get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. Did you know that? By our choices, we get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. By our choices every day, we get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. And by our choices, we can sour our relationship with him. It all comes down, and this is not surprising, but it all comes down to our power of choice. God has given us that power for a very special reason. Do you remember what the reason for the power of choice is? So that we may love God, right? The reason why God has given us the power of choice is so that we can love him. And that's why our choices are so important, because by our choices, we get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. And by our choices, we can sour our relationship with him. Obedience is not why God blesses me. It is how he blesses me. By my choices, I get to choose how sweet Jesus is to me. That's our key phrase for this part of the presentation. Let's read this all out loud together. 
Obedience is not why God blesses me. It is how he blesses me. By my choices, I get to choose how sweet Jesus is to me. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Why does God want us to obey him? So that our joy may be made full. My friends, God just wants us to enjoy him. God wants us to enjoy him to the fullest. God wants us to receive the lavish blessings like he pours out on us like water over Niagara Falls, and sometimes we hold up an umbrella to protect ourselves. But God says, no, take away the umbrella. Let yourself be drenched in my blessings. God just wants to bless us. And every one of God's commands is a blessing, an invitation to a blessing. That is how we enjoy God to the fullest. So back to our original point that we started out with. The key to love is the surrender of self. If I want to love God with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, then I must give God all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, and all of my strength. My friends, what does that mean? In practical terms, what does it mean to give God all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, and all of my strength? It means to throw our gold in the dust, our most precious choices, our most precious choices, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brook. It means to give God all. It means to surrender ourselves unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly to Him and to commit to Him every single one of our choices, our Sunday choices, our Monday choices, our Tuesday choices, our Wednesday choices, all the choices throughout our day. God is asking us to give ourselves to Him, to be consecrated fully to Him so that He can use us to the fullest and so that He can bless us to the fullest. That is how we can delight in the Almighty. That is how we can transfer our treasure from earth to heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have of enjoying you. Thank you so much, Father, for the privilege that we as human beings have of delighting in you. Father, thank you for your miraculous supernatural power that you work in our lives to give us that joy and that love for you. Father, may each one of us be willing and able to consecrate ourselves wholly to you. Nothing between our souls and our Savior. Father, grant that each one of us may be willing and able to say, all my choices are yours in every aspect of my life all the time. Grant, Father, that we may be able to experience your goodness to the fullest. And Heavenly Father, God, please grant that we may teach this good news of surrender, of letting you be Almighty God, of letting you forgive us, of letting you lavish all your goodness upon us, and of letting you take us with you to heaven. Father, help us to teach this wonderful message to everyone we have a chance. I thank you for these blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, um, we have a couple minutes, and I'd like to answer any questions that... Um, we might be able to talk about in a couple of minutes. As you were listening to the presentations, 
did you have any questions about what I said or how I said it or about the, the topic of surrender at all? Um, if you do, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Just raise your hand and then I'm going to come back and get close so I can hear you. Yes. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that this is the key to that delighting Thank you for that question. The question was that we are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before Jesus comes, and that there is going to be a special message of revival and reformation among his people. The question was, is this the message of revival and reformation? My friends, I believe that in order to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to proclaim the three angels' messages, we're going to have to be surrendered. In order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to be, have to be emptied of self. Yes, my friends, I do believe that this is the message that God is teaching his people right now, and that this is the message that will bring about the end-time revival and reformation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I really do believe that. Th thank you for that question. Yeah. How would you define primitive godliness? I define primitive godliness as absolute surrender. I mean, you give yourself wholly to God, and what doesn't God do? Think about it. You give yourself wholly to God. You say, Lord, by your grace and power, you've got me to a place where I'm willing and able to let you have all my choices, to, to, be, to be almighty God in me. And what does God not do? He, he forgives us. He covers us with his righteousness. He empowers us to make those choices that we have committed to him. He keeps us surrendered. He gives us love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and strength. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us guidance. What doesn't God do when we give ourselves wholly to him? My friends, what can we do besides give ourselves to him? Only God can do it. No matter what the good thing is in our life, only God can do it, but only you and I can let him. And that's why surrender is so important. That's why Ellen White says that self-surrender is the substance of the teachings of Christ. Thank you for that question. Yes? This is an observation or, or something that uh, came up to my mind as you were speaking. Uh, in John 17, 3, it says that to know him is eternal life. And I have experienced in my own life and through the knowledge of the scriptures that it is as you know God. Right. That love develops. That's right. That's right. And obedience comes and so on and so forth. So to me, Okay, okay, so the point is, the point is, we need to know him before we can surrender. And you know, that's true to a certain extent, except that we just saw that in order for us to commune with God, we need obedience. And obedience comes from surrender. In other words, in order to know and love God with more than just a pharisaical knowledge, we have to surrender to him. We cannot know and love God without that surrender. So you see, it's a spiral. Yes, God reveals himself to us, and, and, and he reveals what he's done for us at the cross, and we give our hearts to him, and we say, okay, Lord, I need you, I want to know you, I surrender my life to you, and then he helps us to do that. But only through his power can we know him, only through his power can we love him, and that can only happen if we let him. Right? So yes, there's a very important upward spiral there. Yes? 
render a preconception, to render our own agenda. Yep. Yes, this is, this is the statement right here I'd like to, re to reiterate. To know God is to be one with Him in heart and mind, having an experimental knowledge of Him, holding reverential communion with Him as Redeemer. Only through sincere obedience can this communion be obtained. And where does that obedience come from? It can only come from surrender. Only God can work it in us, but only we can let Him. Surrender is letting God be Almighty God. It's letting Him give us that power to obey and serve and love and enjoy Him. Yes. Okay. I think if I gave my life to the Lord when I was a child, I truly did. Uh -huh. But then it, I, all the way, the ups and downs and, and the things that I experienced in my life, and yet I've come to a place now where I've been recently fitting with God. It's like, Lord, I don't even feel like I'm born again. Right. This, Lord, I want obedience in everything in my life. I want to be part of the remnant of the remnant. So I see God taking me to another level of surrender that I didn't even realize existed. That's a good point. Isn't surrender progressive? Yes, my friends, it is, although it's not progressive in one way. <clears throat> surrender has to be wholehearted all at once. In other words, we can't go to God and say, Lord, I give you 99% of my choices, but I'm going to hold back one. In other words, surrender is all or nothing all at once. We say, Lord, I give you all my choices. I commit everything to you. And then for the rest of our lives, it's like a marriage relationship, we're going to be growing in our understanding of God's will, we're going to be growing in our understanding of God's, um, uh, his way. We're going to be growing in our understanding of what he wants us to surrender. We may not even realize that we're not surrendering things that need to be surrendered. So there is a process of growth in that sense. And by the way, that's number five in the series. <laughs> how we can grow in that surrender. What surrenders and how it grows. Yes, that's a good point. But we have to make certain that we're not falling into this trap of the devil that we say, oh, I'm surrendered. I gave my heart to Jesus. I, you know, I gave him most of my choices, so I'm surrendered. No. Surrender is all or nothing all at once. You have to give God all of your choices or none. If God isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. After you commit yourself unreservedly, unresistantly, unrelentingly to God, then he can start the process of showing you what, how high he can take you. Yes, good point. And by the way, I want to just say one more thing about your experience. You know, it's, it's, natural for us to, um, it's natural for us to lose our conversion. Conversion is hard to get and it's, it's hard to keep. Um, by nature, we want self to come back on the throne. We are addicted to selfishness and self-indulgence. And so, if we don't constantly fight it, and if we don't work with God in that process to say, Lord, keep, surrender, keep self down, it will come back up on the throne. And without us hardly even knowing what's happened, we'll lose that conversion. So that is definitely a thing. And it's, it's not just pro uh, possible, it's probable. So um, we have to, and that's number 10 in the series, but we have to work with God pr in practical ways to keep self down and to uh, to keep it um, starve it to death right yeah okay good thank you for that, that comment and that question that's very good this media was produced by audioverse for asi adventist layman's services and industries if you would like to learn more about asi please visit www.asiministries.org
or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.